this evening I'd like to talk a little bit about emotional wakefulness. In this tradition and practice, we're constantly encouraged to cultivate a kind of steadiness, a real quality of steadiness within ourselves, to learn how to bring calmness to the moment to learn how to cultivate a quality of equanimity. This is the direction of the practice. These qualities, again, are qualities that we nurture and cultivate. To learning how to relax, to release some of the agitation, the resistance that Michelle was speaking about, the anxiety, the projects, we learn to release, release a, a great deal of that and turn our attention to shift our balance a little bit towards cultivating instead a kind of poise, an inner poise and balance that can receive, can listen to all of the storms inwardly and outwardly without being shattered or overwhelmed. And I feel that within ourselves, intuitively, we hear the wisdom of this. Too often in our experience, in our lives, we, we know the chaos of having our hearts broken. We know the painfulness of being powerless or feeling like a victim amidst emotional chaos. It's probably not so unfamiliar to feel the very deep painfulness of being lost in intense um, waves of anger, of hurt, of fear, of resentment, and the painfulness of obsessing. And yet as much as we can hear the wisdom of finding more calmness, more steadiness, I think we can at the same time feel somewhat puzzled about how to make the interface, how to find the interface between equanimity and poise and emotional depth. I think sometimes emotional depth and serenity can in our minds almost feel um, incompatible or opposite or polarized. You know, how can you be equanimous? and feel deeply, how can you be calm and feel passionately? As much as we might fear and really want to avoid emotional chaos, there is, of course, a part of us that very naturally values emotional depth. Because we know that it is our capacity to feel deeply, to love passionately, to care fully, that it is those qualities of heart that really bond us in the most essential way with others and with everything in the world. This inner potentiality, this inner capacity to, to celebrate, to rejoice, to, to be able to grieve, fully to respond with the tenderness of compassion. All of those feelings, they are the world of our heart. 
And when we are in touch with that emotional depth, those are often the times in our lives when we feel the most fully alive, when we feel the most awake, and when we feel the most intimate with everything around us. So it's not then, it is an open question then, about how to find emotional ease, how to find emotional balance. It is a question of how to find that ease and emotional freedom, we might say, without surrendering, without sacrificing emotional depth. And of course, all of us would be really reluctant to surrender emotional depth. And I think sometimes, you know, quite frankly, in this tradition, our, our doubts and our questions about emotional balance and equanimity, are, are, those doubts are sometimes reinforced when we, we meet some of the very traditional great masters in this tradition or, or see their faces, you know, when they're often portrayed with these kind of grim and austere and stern faces, you know, as if they've kind of transcended the world, you know, and transcended the the world of emotions. I mean, quite frankly, some of my teachers, I used to sit there and wonder what's going on with you guys, you know, like it was hard to imagine them ever, like, breaking out in song or, you know, rolling on the floor in laughter or weeping over loss, you know, or even just having some fun, I mean, and it's, I mean, I never did get those questions answered because basically I was always too self-conscious to ask them, but in truth I could never actually know what their emotional landscape was like. What is clear for me is that this practice is, is not a path of transcending or subduing emotion that it's not a practice of discounting or ignoring both the power and the value of our emotional world. And in my understanding, equanimity and balance, they don't imply the absence of emotion, but they might suggest the possibility of discovering emotional depth and emotional freedom. And somehow it seems to me that emotional wakefulness and emotional freedom may be the same thing. The landscape of our emotional universe is one that really doesn't know any boundaries. No grief and sadness and joy and love and fear, compassion. They live within the heart of all human beings, in a way there are shared language. We all live in a body and a mind and a world that is fragile that can change so quickly from certainty to being shattered, from health to sickness, from well-being to unease, to from security to uncertainty. We all experience loss and 
separation and death and change and moments of hurt and moments of disappointment, moments of unpredictability. An emotion or the language of our hearts really in the clearest way teaches us about our interconnectedness and our interdependence. It's only possible for us to, to reach out to touch the heart of someone who's grieving because we know what grief is ourselves. We find ourselves sometimes very often able to comfort someone who is hurt or fearful or sad, mostly because we know the language of those feelings in our own hearts. We can feel compassion, we can respond with compassion, mostly because we really know what it feels like to be touched with compassion. And I think again and again our lives continue to teach us that it is emotional wakefulness and emotional depth that connects us on the most essential level. But there's a difference between that emotional depth and emotional intensity. Think about what happens for you when you get really lost in an emotional storm or conflict. When you get really lost in an emotionally charged story. In those moments when we are really overwhelmed and lost within emotional intensity, the truth is that we often don't feel that connected. We often feel actually quite isolated. Our emotional storms, emotional intensity, we see that the nature of them is that they seem to bring so many endless, powerful stories and chatter that they bring with us, bring with them a, a real tendency to become very contracted, to become kind of obsessive, preoccupied. And all of that, of course, is what separates us. It makes us feel really quite alone, quite isolated, and, and quite lonely sometimes within our suffering. We also probably, if we were really honest with what happens with us within that emotional intensity, sometimes see that when we're lost in that contractedness, actually we don't feel very free. And we rarely feel very intimate with anything at all outside of the boundaries of our own struggle and intensity. In this practice, one of the great gifts of it, one of the great blessings of it, I feel, is that we are really learning to attend very closely and very deeply to the language of our heart. We're learning to attend very closely and deeply to our emotional life. And we're learning actually to find the creative power of emotional depth and the sensitivity that is really made possible through our emotions. We're learning to be wise within our emotions. Learning to be wise within our emotions, part of it is actually learning what it is wise to leave behind. And what is wise to leave behind, what is often wise to let go of, is not the emotion, but the feelings of contractedness, the feelings of helplessness, the fear, the sense of being lost, 
the sense of being isolated. What we're trying to leave behind is the suffering, not the emotion. We so often feel to be really quite helpless before the power of our emotions. You know, we can often get the sense that we can be mindful of a lot of things, you know, and yet mindfulness and emotions seem almost incompatible. We can be mindful of our bodies, can't we? You know, that's not so hard, you know. There's a sensation, it's pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. That's, we can learn this, you know. We can be mindful of sounds, we can be mindful of sights, you know. Sometimes we can even, to our amazement, be a mindful of thoughts. But emotions? This is where we often say, no, not this. Not this. You know, this is where I kind of surrender mindfulness. You know, this is where something else has to happen, we almost believe, you know. That we have to have a different kind of strategy or a different kind of practice or a different kind of process or, you know, a kind of prescription or an expert's advice. Because the truth is, often when very strong emotions appear, they can feel almost like an avalanche that crushes everything else in its path. And often what feels to get crushed is our capacity to be present, our capacity, capacity to be mindful, our capacity for sensitivity. It is because of that power, you know, because of that avalanche nature of some of our emotional intensity. That's really why we're called upon in this practice to cultivate emotional mindfulness and to cultivate emotional freedom, not to subdue the emotion, but to learn how to let go of the helplessness and the contractedness. You know, on the eve, you know, of the Buddha's enlightenment, when Siddhartha sat down underneath that Bodhi tree, Really, when you read that story closely, it's like Siddhartha sat down in the midst of an emotional storm. And in the story, that emotional storm is called Mara, the forces of, of, of entrapment, the forces of, of almost sabotage. You know, and Mara appeared in, in the guise of anger, in the guise of hatred, in the guise of greed, in the guise of dust, uh, uh, doubt and lust and fear, aren't these much of what happens in our emotional world? Familiar visitors, not so unknown to any of us. And that story has always been so important for me in my practice. You know, listening to Siddhartha's response, you know, did he throw his hands in the air, run screaming from the Bodhi tree, you know, curl up in the fetal ball, you know, take out a picnic, you know. He didn't do any of those things. You know, what always has amazed me is, is the kind of calming of denial, the calming of agitation, the calming of resistance, and that capacity to turn towards that emotional storm and say so simply, I know you. I know you. To me, this is not a story of denial. It's a story of freedom that tells us here to. Amidst the most intense of feelings, amidst the most intense of storms, amidst the most intense of these tidal waves, here to. 
we can find the sensitivity, we can find the spaciousness that rejects nothing, that embraces all things, and sustains and nurtures that sense of being so grounded and so poised. Those words, I know you, are not shallow or dismissive. Instead, they, they really embody the attitude which is at the heart of opening and at the heart of deepening. They embody that attitude of welcome, the attitude of balance that lies at the heart of this path of awakening, that nothing is unwelcome, unwelcome, that everything we can feel, everything we can experience without exception is worthy of our wholehearted attention and presence. And sometimes I'm reminded of that wonderful Zen saying, you know, that under the shade of the cherry tree, there are no strangers. When we reflect upon this journey, it's a spiritual journey, it's a sacred journey, it's a journey of diving deeply inwardly. And in that inner descent, we meet our dragons, and our angels equally, because both of them have much to teach us about freedom. What we discover in that inner descent, in that spiritual descent, is that as we dive deeply within ourselves, there's not a whole lot that stays hidden. Things tend to become visible to us. We don't always welcome that. But it's not only our angels that become visible, it's also our dragons. You know, sometimes there really are moments of incredible stillness and and beauty and peace. And yet we find that as we dive beneath the chatter, that a lot of the chatter is camouflage. And a lot of the chatter is a kind of camouflage that conceals our hearts. And as we go beneath that chatter, what we encounter, of course, is every single feeling in the emotional spectrum. We may meet anger, or shame, or fear, or loneliness. We may meet every fragment of resentment we've ever harbored. We may meet every argument we've ever had with another person. Every piece of aversion all comes like a little parade to present itself to us. Can we find inwardly the kind of poise, the kind of openness and balance that this is about where we learn some of the lessons of freedom, that here we learn about acceptance, here we learn about forgiveness, about patience, about compassion, And here also we learn about freedom and about confidence in ourselves. And this piece is so important, the confidence in ourselves, the confidence to meet ourselves, the confidence to to meet the moment without shrinking, that turning towards rather than turning away from is such a blessing. 
I mean, all of us do encounter in this practice what the Buddha once called the wilderness of our hearts, the tumultuous world of our feelings, our fears, and our doubts, the powerful, sometimes habitual emotional patterns that entangle us. And probably you notice that some of those emotional patterns really feel quite habitual. You know, like we get up in the morning and there's the, you know, the, the pathway of irritation or the pathway of resentment or the pathway of greed or the pathway of fear. And we can almost feel ourselves like marching down those pathways. You know, we know where they're going. We've been here before. They can feel almost like this kind of fatal attraction that we keep getting entangled in. Sometimes those emotional pathways have been formed over a lifetime. Sometimes they're really rooted in the past, a past that we keep reliving over and over in the present. Now, none of these emotional pathways, none of this emotional complexity is going to be dissolved by willpower. You know, that doesn't work. Try just commanding yourself not to do it not that effective. They don't also get dissolved by resistance. You may have tried that one once or twice already. You know, no, I don't want to do this, you know. I hate it, you know, it's horrible, you know. That doesn't work either. Avoidance is not that successful. You know, I think I'm just going to a fantasy for, uh, you know, what's waiting for us when we return. You know? Think I won't sit, I'll go up the hill. What do we take with us? You know? Avoidance doesn't actually, it's not that successful. Sometimes, because these emotional patterns have such a long history, we can re- kind of resign ourselves to the, uh, them being a sort of perpetual presence through our lives. We can feel powerless, and yet we are not powerless. Our emotional world really does invite a very tender mindfulness to be closely present, to be willing to understand, to be so interested. And perhaps more than anything else, to, to understand, to really treasure the understanding that just because something has a long history, it doesn't imply that it has a long future. That mindfulness and awareness are both empowering and they are creative. Because mindfulness and awareness are always seeking, in the moment, the path of freedom. Not later, not after this emotional storm is over, not after this memory is over, but mindfulness and awareness are always seeking, in the moment, the path of freedom within this, amidst with this, amongst this, not in getting rid of anything at all. What our mindfulness does, what awareness does, is that of course it illuminates where we are. This is like a very major, huge step. Just to illuminate where we are, to know what we're experiencing, to know what's going on. I mean, we should never take this for granted. There's such a, a massive difference between being unconscious and actually just knowing what we're experiencing. That illumination 
is in itself what begins to reveal the pathway of what is possible in that moment. The pathway of possibility we may be able to walk. We are learning through mindfulness to give birth to a present and to give birth to a a future which is both much deeper and much freer than just a repetition of the past. Our emotional world can also feel powerful, but it can also feel quite dangerous. There's probably no other dimension of our life than our emotions that involves so much thought, so much energy, so much preoccupation. We see like small emotions give rise to just small thoughts. You know? A little aversion, just a little, just a few aversive thoughts. You know? A little irritation, just a few modifying thoughts. You know, a little doubt, few speculations. Intense emotions give birth to big thoughts. Intense thoughts, powerful thinking, obsessive thinking, the flood of, of agitation that can so color our way of seeing and relating to the world of the moment. So when we are often learning to be mindful of thinking, we are at the same time learning to be mindful of feeling and to see the relationship between them. We also, I think, sometimes tend to be very dualistic in our relationship to this emotional world. We, we, We have this tendency to divide our emotions into these categories of positive and negative, spiritual and unspiritual, acceptable and unacceptable, good and bad emotions. And that conditions our relationship to them. Because emotions that we deem as being negative, such as greed or anger or loneliness or shame, what do we want to do with them? How do we relate to them? Do we say, fine, hang around for a while, bring your friends, let's visit for a while. Mostly the emotions we deem as negative, we're doing the absolute utmost we can to get rid of them, to flee from them, to control them, to subjugate them in some way. And we're so tempted to internalize some of the social and spiritual taboos around some of these emotions. You might look on them as shameful. We feel embarrassed because we're angry when we think we're supposed to be so generous. You know, we feel ashamed of being aversive or irritated or self-centered because we're supposed to be so open and receptive. We look on them as fact as kind of personal flaws. Even we can take pain as being our fault, something we're doing wrong. We take them as, as being personal imperfections that somehow we have to hide or eradicate or, or pretend they're not happening or or even in some way to try to cut ourselves off from these difficult emotions. And what we do in that, of course, is to create a very dangerous schism inwardly because our bodies restore everything we reject. Our bodies restore everything that we, we deny. And often, of course, the, everything we, we subdue, everything we deny and reject, reject may very well return to shatter us in the moments when we're most vulnerable. 
this dualistic value system that we can hold around our emotions, as I mentioned, conditions our relationship to them. Fear, resistance, anger we try to avoid, we call them negative, or else we get caught in the story of them. And that can be a kind of mindful dwelling. It doesn't make it a better dwelling. It just looks better. You know, mindful dwelling is when we're kind of caught and we're trying to explain to ourselves what's going on. You know, now I wonder where this came from. Oh, yes. You know, I remember that event, that relationship, that situation, that circumstance. We're trying to explain them to ourselves, to why they're here, why I'm like that. Almost being tempted to believe that if we could find the explanation, we're going to find the solution. You know, that if we could figure out why they're here, they would somehow magically disappear. It's rarely the case, actually, that that happens. Sometimes we, we discover, you know, totally true, real explanations about why we feel angry or why we feel fearful or why we feel self-conscious. But somehow it very rarely stops us being overwhelmed by those feelings. It doesn't mean that it's invalid to know that history. Sometimes it is very valid to know that history. But perhaps it may not be so realistic to expect that knowing that history is actually going to mean the end. The emotions we value, we tend to have a different, of course, relationship to them. We search, we dream about them, we try to pursue them, we try to maintain them. You know, I want to be happy, peaceful, loving. And what happens when they're not there? When those qualities feel inaccessible, again, we can either feel there's something wrong. And rather than being simply present with what is, we may find ourselves that we start prowling the world, looking for those emotions that we call positive ones. And where do we look for them? In having some other kind of sensation, some other kind of experience, or maybe in a person. You know, we find ourselves investing, investing in sensations, investing in experiences, investing in people, investing in, in success, the power to make us happy. And when we do that, when we project that power outside of ourselves, that you have the power to, to save me, to make me happy, if I only had this experience, then I would be happy. If I only had this different sensation, then I'd be happy. You know what happens to many of us when we do that? We sell ourselves into a kind of emotional dependency based upon projection. Rather than perhaps touching the reality that the root of happiness, the root of love, the root of peace lies in our own heart. Even the search for positive emotions can become a kind of perilous journey. Because when we look for emotional wakefulness or emotional depth outside of ourselves, very often what we do is abandon ourselves. We disconnect from ourselves. It's the externalization of happiness that haunts our culture. You know, the externalization of peace, the externalization of joy, the externalization of love, that so haunts our culture. You know, sometimes I think culturally we mistake emotional intensity for emotional wakefulness, and I don't think they're the same. You know, we can get emotional intensity through, you know, some, you know, huge uh, horror movie, you know, uh, you know, some massive, you know, roller coaster, 
you know, we can get emotional intensity through, you know, crisis through drama. I don't think it's the same as emotional wakefulness. And I think it has a really lethal effect on our culture, personally. You know, because our addictions get more prevalent, our, our need to be woken up by something outside of ourselves becomes increasingly exaggerated. You know, as if we need to be woken up by something happening to us. As if we can't find wakefulness within ourselves. I think it's perilous to mistake emotional intensity with emotional wakefulness. You know, Joseph Campbell once said, I, he said, I think what we're really seeking for is the rapture of being alive. The rapture of feeling alive. I think this is true. You know, what we're really seeking for is the rapture, the joy of feeling fully alive. Our capacity to care, our capacity to sense and feel deeply, are given great significance and meaning because they are the qualities that bring so much richness, so much meaning, so much intimacy into our lives. They are the qualities that nourish our spirit. And it I don't, may not be emotional intensity that brings that meaning because emotional intensity is dependent upon very transient sensations and experiences. I think it, is, it may well be emotional freedom that brings meaning. And discovering what emotional wakefulness and emotional freedom is, this is a path we can only walk for ourselves. Emotional freedom is certainly not found through succumbing to waves of emotional isolation. Emotional freedom is certainly not found in preoccupation. And it's not found in trying to get rid of or avoid the emotions that come. You know, and I think even this sometimes is an underlying agenda. We say, oh, I'll be with this feeling so it goes away. I'll be with this sadness so that it will go away. Ramdas, someone said, you know, you can't open to something in the hope that it will go away because it knows. (laughs) I think that's true. Finally, we come to realize that emotional freedom is actually found in understanding. You know, the being the victim, being the master, this sort of fragile identity is born of either succumbing or overcoming. And if we're not succumbing or overcoming, what can we do? You know, how can we really expect to open our hearts to anything, anyone in this world? Unless we really learn to how to open our hearts to this inner world, to receive it with care, without succumbing, without overcoming. When we forsake the pathways of resistance or pursuit, there's really only one place left to be. And that really is to turn our wholehearted attention, our interest, with calmness, with a peaceful mind, to being in this moment, this experience, this emotion, not to be lost, but to be fully present. Sometimes to let go of the preoccupation. Let go of the preoccupation. Recently, I read this wonderful line and said, you know, if you find yourself in a hole, it's a good idea to stop digging. <laughs> to learn how to stand still and say, I know you. 
that's so rarely our first response. You know, stillness is rarely our first response to emotional intensity. But stillness may be one of the great keys to emotional freedom. To really look, is it possible to find that quality of unshakable balance in the complexity of our emotional landscape? To take the step of questioning those assumptions that the world and the 10,000 things in it intrinsically hold the power to enrage us, terrify us, or depress us. This is a big step. You know, because as long as we're believing that this world has the power to terrify, enrage, or depress us, we're kind of a prisoner of the 10,000 things. We delegate to them the authority to govern our emotional life and freedom. Someone told me a story of the gauntlet emotions they went through after being mugged in New York. You know, the kind of rage they experienced, the anxiety that it would happen again, the feelings of being so powerless, then the feelings of wanting vengeance, you know, a kind of crescendo of intensity. And she talked about how she came to realize that actually it came to that point where the mugger was in charge of her life, that she thought about him, obsessed about him, feared about him, and that basically the mugger had come to govern her heart. And when she began, she said, to explore the depths of those feelings just to be with them, clearly present with them, to accept them, to befriend them, in a way, that was when she began to reclaim her heart, to reclaim her life. You know, Havel, a poet, once said that hatred has much in common with desire. With both come a fixation upon others, dependence upon them, and in fact a delegation of a piece of our identity to them. The hater longs for the object of her hatred, just as the lover longs for the object of her love. When we probe beneath the concept, just the con- probing beneath the concept of anger and sadness and fear, what we really come to see more and more in the practice is that our emotions, they're not static or fixed or permanent or preordained states that arise from nowhere. That all of our emotions arise from conditions. They involve our bodies, they carry a feeling tone, they pick up along the path memories and associations and thoughts. And that inner unfoldment of an emotion can be so incredibly rapid that it takes remarkable mindfulness to perceive it. But in a way, it's helpful to look at how we would find the keys or the doorways to understand that process. I mean, emotions do have a beginning in the moment. Sometimes we don't notice the beginning, but they're they're sparked. They're sparked usually by a contact with something through our sense doors, including the mind. It can be a sound, a sight, a thought, a sensation in our body, a smell, a taste that those are little sparks, almost like sparks, that begin a process unless we're incredibly mindful. And you've probably seen that here, you know. You go outside, you know, and you see 
you know, one of the one of the vultures flying to the air. I mean, there's an incredible grace, you know. Sometimes you see that and you can sense that sense of, you know, there's that little spark. First, it's just a sight. This is a very human experience. You know, there's a sight. The perception comes. The feeling comes. The appreciation of liking. The memories come. You know, oh, I could be like this. You know, my consciousness could be like this. You know, life is so wonderful. We go a few months late, a minute later, we see a snake on the road, you know. Ooh, different sight, you know. Different association, but a different emotion begins to unfold. What happens when the pain in the knee comes? You know, it's the beginning of a process, a journey often. The touch of the sun on our face can begin a totally different journey. All of these contacts with the world through our sense door stimulate feeling. Pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings. This is life. It holds all those feelings. We're not trying to have only one kind of feeling. We're trying to have life. The feelings are not a problem. But the feelings sometimes carry with them more hidden underlying tendencies. So we see how often the unpleasant feeling picks up the underlying tendency of aversion, resistance. How the pleasant feeling often picks up the underlying tendency of wanting and craving. How the neutral feeling picks up the underlying tendency of delusion, the feeling there's something missing, which can begin a new cycle of craving. The feelings pick up thoughts, and soon we have the story It's going. You know, you've probably heard a number of times that the average person has around 67,000 thoughts a day. You know what that means, that we write a book every day? in our mind. We read in a whole book every day, like a fairly decent-sized book. <laughs> in a, of many chapters. You know, and it's like, how mindful can we be of the chapters we're writing in the moment? Of the story we're writing? What is emotion, the difference between emotional intensity and emotional wakefulness? It, intensity is about being lost. It's about being contracted. It's about struggling. It's about the I am, and sometimes the you are. What is emotional wakefulness? It's about seeing. It's about listening deeply. It doesn't mean that there's no feelings of aversion. It doesn't mean there's no feelings of fear. It doesn't mean there's no unpleasant sensations. But we sense them deeply, and we learn not to conclude. And actually, you know, sometimes when we don't conclude, we're already releasing a whole lot of struggle. You know, the moment that we conclude, you know, and, and create those self-definitions that say, I am, you know, the big capital letters, the inner pronouncements, I am, really notice that the moment we conclude, that is actually when we feel so stunned and helpless and struggling. We learn, actually, that we can bring sensitivity and calmness into this unfolding process because we're introducing another condition or several more conditions. We are introducing the conditions of interest, the conditions of investigation, the conditions of mindful attention, that rather than concluding, they encourage us to say, what is this? You know, what is this I'm experiencing? 
this feeling? You know, what is this experience? We become actually much more interested rather than saying, I am. You know, I am, I am fearful, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm inadequate, when we insist so strongly on being someone. Of course, we get defined by those conclusions. We're prone to categorize ourselves and confine ourselves, and we impose them upon all things. You know, freeing ourselves sometimes of self-definition is one of the greatest acts of compassion. It tends to free everything around us, too, from definition. And many times when we're no longer tempted to conceptualize, to conclude about ourselves, that is often when the healing begins. It's often when we kind of stop interfering with the process of healing and releasing. And we can explore the many interwoven threads of our emotional world, sense what's happening in our body, sense what's happening in our feelings, possible to step out of the extremes of succumbing or overcoming, to discover the simple freedom of being with. Really about nurturing the awakened heart. You know, that feels deeply, that loves well, that treasures forgiveness and compassion, that lives with profound sensitivity. And in that, I think sometimes the creative power of emotions is really a release. We learn about emotional freedom, emotional potential, emotional creativity. As Rumi once said, the only Lasting beauty is the beauty of the heart. We take a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate